WAF Murfreesboro. WGNS Murfreesboro. This is FM 100.5, 101.9, AM 1450, and WGNSRadio.com. Rutherford County's Place to Talk. Stand by, Rutherford County. The WGNS Action Line continues a search for truth. We welcome everyone to the program. My name is J. Paul Newman. My co-host is Rutherford County District Attorney General Jennings Jones. This is our 88th broadcast. As we move into our eighth year of broadcasting, we thank WGNS for providing the airtime. We also thank our producer, Nick Cohen. Most of all, we thank you for listening. In our Inside the Court segment, District Attorney General Jennings Jones will tell you about recent and upcoming grand jury, general sessions, and circuit court activity. In our call to conviction segment, we will highlight a case that clearly demonstrates the need for hate crime legislation. It is the 1996 murder of Gregory Dotson Jr. Then in our What's the Law segment, Former District Attorney General Bill Weitzel will discuss an area of the law that you will find to be both interesting and educational. It is the law regarding hate crimes. And finally, if time allows, we will close the program with our cold case profile segment. We will be asking for your help in solving a mystery. We will begin the broadcast after you listen to these important messages. Now more than ever, start your mornings with WGNS. The Action Line with Bart Walker. Weekday mornings at 810 on WGNS AM, FM, online. This is Peter Demas with Demas Family of Restaurants. When it's getting cold outside and you don't want to really get out of your car, Demas's has now started a curbside service. So you can order online, put your make and model of your car into the website, and when the food is ready, we will bring it out to your car, and therefore you can still be in your pajamas and come and get lunch and go back to your home if you want to. Curbside service. It's just another level of service of which we are trying to provide the residents of Murfreesboro. Visit us online at demasrestaurants.com. This is Inside the Courts. A look at this month's trials, pleas, and grand jury action. Inside the Courts is presented as a courtesy of the Rutherford County Clerk's Office. Good morning, everyone. This is your District Attorney, Jennings Jones. And in this segment, I will be your tour guide as I take you inside the courts. We begin this segment by stating that none of the defendants named in upcoming trials or hearings have been convicted, and, of course, they are presumed by our law to be innocent. With that as a prelude, we will now go inside the courts. On April the 9th, 2020, officers with the Murfreesboro Police Department responded to a residence on North Boulevard, pardon me, North Rutherford Boulevard in response to a shooting resulting in the death of Mr. Stephen Lopez, Jr., 
Detective Richard Presley has been assigned as lead investigator for the Murfreesboro Police Department. Detective Presley has, been char- has charged Mr. James Evans III with the second-degree murder of Mr. Stephen Lopez, Jr. Mr. Evans posted a bond and made his initial appearance in the General Sessions Court of Rutherford County, where he waived his right to a preliminary hearing and is now awaiting presentment of his case to the grand jury. 54-year-old Martin Benito Montmire is scheduled to appear in the courtroom of Judge David Bragg on February the 9th of this year. Martin Montmire is charged with first-degree murder. On March 31, 2019, at approximately 3 a.m., the Murfreesboro Police Department responded to the Montmire home in the 400 block of Sunset Avenue in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Once inside the home, they discovered the body of Martin Montmire's wife, 53-year-old Judith Montmire. Judith Montmire had been killed by knife wounds that she had suffered at the hands of her assailant. Judith Montmire was the manager at Donut Country, located on Memorial Boulevard. Following the initial investigation, Murfreesboro Detective Jacob Felton charged Martin Montmire with the murder of his wife, Judith Montmire. Martin Montmire will be represented by Rutherford County Assistant Public Defender Ben Wetzel. The state will be represented by Assistant District Attorneys Trevor Lynch and Dana Miner. In this case, the state has given notice that if Martin Montmire is convicted of murder, it will be seeking a sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole. Martin Montmire is also being held for a Texas parole violation on two prior murder convictions. Martin Montmire remains in state custody at the Rutherford County Jail, awaiting further court action. On April the 30th of 2018, 17-year-old Yuji Cherubin was shot and killed at, the Laverne, at a Laverne residence while his two siblings sat with him in his car. According to the Laverne Police Department, Cherubin went into an address at the 2000 block of George Buchanan Drive in Laverne, Tennessee. Cherubin was in the process of attempting to buy an iPhone when he was shot in the face and robbed. Cherubin later died at a local hospital. Within 24 hours, the Laverne Police Department located and charged two juveniles with the murder of Cherubin. Earlier this year, the two juveniles were transported to the adult courts by Juvenile Court Judge Donna Scott Davenport. Now that the two juveniles have been adjudicated to be treated as adult, we can provide their names. They are Brian Berry and Marquez Hughes. Brian Berry and Marquez Hughes will make their next appearance in the courtroom of Judge David Bragg on January the 14th of this year. Brian Berry is being represented by Murfreesboro attorney Derek Howard. Marquez Hughes is represented by Assistant Public Defender Ben Wetzel. The state is being represented by Assistant District Attorney Trevor Lynch. Brian Berry and Marquez Hughes are currently being held at the Rutherford County Jail, unable to postpone. <clears throat> On the 26th of June, 2019, Deputies with the Rutherford County Sheriff's Department responded to a residence on Walnut Grove Road. Mr. Terry Barber was found deceased on the floor with his hands and feet bound together. Detectives Ty Downing and Steve Brown have been assigned as lead investigators. Following their investigation, the detectives developed several individuals as suspects in the case. Devon Gailey, Brent Ross, and Vernice Ferrer have been charged with first-degree murder, especially aggravated kidnapping aggravated robbery, aggravated burglary, and fraudulent use of a debit card. All three defendants have appeared before the General Sessions Court of Rutherford County and are represented by separate counsel. After a preliminary hearing, a General Sessions Court 
for Rutherford County bound the matter over to the grand jury. In June of 2020, a Rutherford County grand jury indicted the three defendants on all charges. The defendants will appear before the Division II Circuit Court on March 18th of this year. On December 28th of last year, deputies with the Rutherford County Sheriff's Department arrested Mr. Juan Lugo for the murder of his wife, Brecca Lugo. Brecca Lugo's body was found on the side of a road in Christiana. She had been strangled and stabbed and left for dead. Detective Joe Duncan with the Rutherford County Sheriff's Department has been assigned as lead investigator. Following Detective Duncan's investigation, Juan Lugo was charged with the first-degree murder of Brecca Lugo, abuse of a corpse, and tampering with evidence. Juan Lugo is currently being held at the Rutherford County Jail on a $500,000 bond, awaiting his appearance in General Sessions Court. On December the 8th of 2016, Murfreesboro Police located the body of Francesca Gomez Cordero in a wooded area off of Elam Road. Francisca Gomez Cordero was an Hispanic female. Based on their investigation, Murfreesboro detectives have now filed charges against Romulo Hernandez Mayorga. Mayorga has thus far eluded capture. If you have information regarding this case or the whereabouts of Romulo Hernandez Mayorga, please contact Detective Doug Arrington of the Murfreesboro Police Department. The number to call is 615-893-1311. That number again is 615-893-1311. General Jones, thank you for that wonderful update. And uh, one thing that has been on all of our minds is the coronavirus and how has it affected the circuit courts, the defendants, the victims, things of that nature. Can you take a few minutes and kind of give us an update as to how the coronavirus has impacted our criminal justice system. Paul, I'd be happy to. Uh, as you know, uh, several months ago, the Tennessee Supreme Court issued an order uh, that uh, effectively closed the courthouse to the public, save for jail cases. Uh, the courts have been able to process jail cases through, but people who were on bond, their court dates were continued. That has happened again. Apparently, there has been a, a spike in the number of coronavirus cases, and uh, because of that, the Tennessee Supreme Court has issued an order stating that for the month of January, uh, there will be no bond cases heard in court uh, at the Rutherford County Courthouse or across the state. We are continuing to hear uh, jail cases, uh, so anyone who is arrested will be able to appear in court uh, in front of a General Sessions judge in a timely manner. Uh, and then, of course, uh, people who are in jail and due for circuit court will also uh, be able to come into court. Now, the current Supreme Court order says that we will not be able to have jury trials or be able to have grand jury until the end of February. So uh, right now, we will not be able to have large gatherings in court, jury trials, grand jury, until the start of March. There is a fear uh, it's possible that that order could be extended. However, I, I very much have my fingers crossed and I am hoping that that will not be the case. Uh, what effect has this had on the courts? Well, we're not able to move our dockets as we really need to, and because of that, uh, cases are stacking up. Um, we were starting to work out from underneath the, the backup from the first Supreme Court order uh, when the second order hit. 
we had begun to try jury cases again. Uh, we were moving cases through. The grand juries had gotten back on course. Uh, we had uh, worked out from under pretty much most of that backlog, and that's starting again. Uh, I am I'm a little worried. Uh, we do have grand jury scheduled for February. Uh, we right now are scheduled to have three grand juries in February. If the Supreme Court extends the order, of course, that would uh, uh, prevent us from having grand jury in February, and we would have to move into, into March. So we'll see how that goes. I'm a little worried about it. Can you tell me, uh, <clears throat> give us an approximation, and I know this would be an estimate, mm-hmm. basically how many trials do you approximate have been postponed or continued because of the order? Paul, uh, anything that was actually supposed to be heard in court uh, during the month of January has been continued. So the number... I'm going to say probably 15 to 20 jury trials have been continued. Uh, that would be more than the number that are set in, in January. Uh, however, the courts have probably continued some of those uh, on the basis of attorneys being unable to meet with clients and other factors that have caused uh, problems uh, with getting those cases ready for trial. As far as the way it affects the different courts, uh, do you know how it has affected General Sessions Court as opposed to Circuit and perhaps even Juvenile? Well, of course, General Sessions is the court uh, of first appearance, and so almost all cases will start in General Sessions Court. What that means is that General Sessions is the court of highest volume. Uh, typically, on an average day, you will see somewhere around 300 cases set in General Sessions Court. Most of those are, of course, bond cases. If we can't have those bond cases heard, their court dates have to be rolled on until, uh, once again, the Supreme Court opens our courts back up. That creates a tremendous backlog. We are processing, as we said, the processing jail cases on through, uh, but the backlog of bond cases is tremendous. Can you give us the current guidelines and what I'm looking at now is let's say a person has been summoned to court as a defendant or a victim. What do they need to know as they go to the court? Um, If you're a defendant, if you are in jail, you are coming into court and you'll be transported there, so uh, you won't have to worry about that. Uh, If you are on bond, getting you to court is not going to happen during the month of January unless you receive specific instructions from your attorney or from the court Uh, You will not have a court date if you are on bond. Uh, As for victims, we still have victims coming into court. Uh, They have the constitutional right to appear uh, at uh, uh, critical stages of the proceedings. Uh, That does include preliminary hearings, uh, so uh, they are certainly coming into court as necessary. Um, If you are a victim, Make sure to speak with uh, the uh, security at the front of the courthouse. Tell them you are a victim. Uh, If you are not already on a list to be allowed into the courthouse, uh, then they will contact either one of the judges or one of the assistant district attorneys, uh, and we'll make sure that you get into the courthouse. Uh, Have a little patience. Uh, As you might expect, everywhere you go, lines are backed up because it's hard to get in buildings now. 
Uh, we are checking temperatures, uh, and uh, everybody is required to wear a mask uh, and maintain six-foot distance. So, as I say, have a little patience, allow security to work through the process, uh, and if you are a victim and have a court date, we will get you into the building. And as far as the personnel inside the courtroom, let's say the uh, attorneys, the district attorneys, the court reporter, uh, the court officers, uh, do they have to wear a mask while they're inside the courtroom? Yes. Uh, by order of the Supreme Court, uh, all personnel inside the courthouse must be wearing a mask at all times. Uh, so uh, when you go in, it, it might be a little harder to understand folks. You can't see their lips as they're talking. They're a little harder to hear. Uh, but we are wearing a mask in order to uh, uh, comply with the Supreme Court's order. It would appear to me that under these orders that a lot of people are uh, not going to court to get their case disposed of in what we would call a timely manner. Uh, and I know that that would probably cause problems. What steps, if any, have the courts taken uh, to address those issues? Paul, that's a good question and one that is best addressed to the judges. Okay. Uh, I think, however, that um, due to the nature of the pandemic and the restrictions imposed by the Tennessee Supreme Court, uh, certain measures have been taken uh, that would not normally be available to the courts. And I suspect it would be harder for the defense to make an argument uh, an effective argument uh, that they are not receiving a timely trial uh, because the order of the Supreme Court allows that these continuances should happen. Um, so motions for a speedy trial uh, will be taken by the courts and if they are heard by the by the Supreme Court ultimately on appeal it may be that they are not successful. What about bond motions? Have you seen any increase in bond motions? Well, and can you explain what the bond motion is? Sure. Uh, Paul, when a, uh, when a defendant is arrested, uh, uh, their bond is set by the judicial magistrates. Uh, the, the bond is set in accordance with uh, the crime they committed, the danger they pose to the community, uh, their ties to the community, uh, a defendant's past criminal history, um, their uh, stability in the community, whether or not they have a job. Various things are considered. Uh, if a defendant is unable to make bond, then frequently they will come into court and they will file a motion or ask the court uh, to reduce their bond. Uh, now, your question is, have we continued to see those? Yes, we have continued to see those, and uh, since these are motions filed by defendants who are in jail, uh, the courts do consider them. Um, it is not infrequent to have a motion to reduce uh, before the pandemic, and, and certainly uh, we're seeing a number of them now. Now, one thing I will say is that in light of the pandemic, uh, the courts and the judicial magistrates have attempted to keep numbers in the jail down. Uh, they've attempted to do that by, on less serious cases, either reducing a bond or having an officer issue a citation. Uh, and, and if a citation is, is, is issued, uh, the defendant is not arrested. They don't go to jail. They are given a court date, uh, and they will appear in court based on the citation without having to go to jail or make bond. Thank you for all of that information, Jennings. And uh, I appreciate the work that you and your office does for our community. 
And I'm going to pitch it back to you to close this segment. Paul, thank you. Uh, I, I enjoy my job, my office. Uh, I have been blessed with wonderful people in my office. And more importantly, I have been blessed in, into a, a wonderful community. Uh, thank you for being here, and I appreciate your time. Sometimes strange things can happen. Coast to coast, all night, every night. There's really no reason to be afraid. On WTNS AM FM online. Come by our store, Music World and Drummer's Den. We're a full-line music instrument store with well over 5,000 square feet packed with great instruments in every category. In guitars, we're your local dealer for the two top acoustic guitar brands in the world, Martin and Taylor. We've got the best selection and prices anywhere in the state of Tennessee on these. This is Dave Kivanemi at Music World and Drummer's Den in Murfreesboro. 2762 South Church Street, across from Indian Hills Golf Course. Listen live to WGNS Radio on our website, Analexa, or Google devices. Search WGNS Radio for on-demand podcasts in iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Plus, we have direct links to podcasts at WGNSRadio.com. Time now for a look back at one of the more intriguing and important cases for this community. From the crime the investigation to the prosecution. Today, we journey all the way back to July 17, 1996. That is the day that 22-year-old Gregory Dotson Jr. met his death. Greg Dotson was a son, a husband, and the father of two small children. Greg Dotson was married to Joy Dotson. The couple had been experiencing marital problems. The problems led to a separation, and Greg Dotson had returned home to Baltimore, Maryland. On the day he was killed, Greg Dotson had returned to Murfreesboro. The couple was attempting to reconcile their problems, but there were two very big obstacles. The two obstacles were Chris Stacy, who was Joey Dotson's brother, and Dondi Tidwell, who was Joey Dotson's nephew. Greg Dotson was an African-American, and Joy Dotson was white. Chris Stacy and Dondi Tidwell had previously told Joy that they did not approve of Greg Dotson because of his color. They also told her if Greg Dotson came back that they would take care of him. It was during the late night hours of July 17, 1996, while Joy Dotson was at work, that Greg Dotson arrived at the couple's apartment. Also present at the home were Chris Stacy and Dondi Tidwell. When Greg Dotson came inside the apartment, he was attacked and hit in the head with a baseball bat. He was then tied up and put in his car. Chris Stacy got behind the wheel. Dondi Tidwell got in his car and followed. They drove to a remote location off Halls Hill Pike. They remove Greg Dotson from the car. They turn up the car radio. The music was very loud, but not loud enough to drown out the sound of a shotgun blast. That blast struck the back of the head of Greg Dotson. The shot was heard by two coon hunters. After the shooting, Dondi Tidwell drove back to the apartment to clean up the scene. Chris Stacy was also busy trying to sell Greg Dotson's car to a total stranger. 
with outstanding citizen cooperation and superb police investigation, Chris Stacy and Dondi Tidwell quickly became the prime suspects in this case. Within 24 hours, they were arrested and charged with the murder of Greg Dotson. When we return, we will tell you about the cases of the state of Tennessee versus Chris Stacy and Dondi Tidwell. Old friends, new name, better together, as First National Bank of Murfreesboro transforms into Capstar Bank, our focus is on you. We're entering a new generation of banking in Rutherford County, but we'll always remain a community bank with local people you trust and uniquely exceptional service you deserve. We're at 2230 Mercury Boulevard, capstar.com. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. In October of 1996, the Rutherford County Grand Jury indicted 20-year-old Chris Stacy and 19-year-old Dondi Tidwell for the murder of 22-year-old Gregory Dotson, Jr. The case was assigned to the court of Judge James Clayton, Jr. Chris Stacy was represented by Nashville attorney James Weatherly. Dondi Tidwell was represented by Crossville attorney Larry Warner and Laverne attorney Larry Wallace. The prosecution team consisted of District Attorney General William C. Weitzel, Jr. and Assistant District Attorneys Tom Jackson and J. Paul Newman. On March 1, 1999, Chris Stacy entered a plea of guilty to three different charges. On the conspiracy charge, Stacy was sentenced to 15 years. On the especially aggravated kidnapping charge, Stacy was again sentenced to 15 years. And on the first-degree murder charge, Chris Stacy was sentenced to life in prison. Dondi Tidwell chose to let a jury decide his fate. The trial began on April the 11th, 2000. On April the 13th, 2000, after hearing three days of proof, the jury returned with their verdict. The jury found Dondi Tidwell guilty on four counts of the indictment. He was ultimately sentenced to 60 years on the conspiracy count, 10 years on the theft count, 40 years on the especially aggravated kidnapping count, and 40 years for the murder of Greg Dotson. It was through the cooperation of concerned citizens that law enforcement officers were able to hold Chris Stacy and Dondi Tidwell criminally responsible for the brutal and senseless killing of 22-year-old Greg Dotson. A big part of the investigative team was Scott Miller, who was the lead detective on this case. Scott Miller is now a sergeant with the Tennessee Department of Safety. Sergeant Miller, we want to welcome you to the broadcast. Uh, good morning. Thank you for having me. Sergeant Miller, tell us about yourself and what motivated you to choose law enforcement as your profession, and if you will, also tell us about your current employment with the Department of Safety and how that came to be. Well, I've been in law enforcement for the last 27 years. As a uh, kid or a child growing up, like most kids, I was fascinated by the cops I'd see around town, also the uh, state troopers I'd see on the hall and the uh, highways. Um, also, I was a fan of John Wayne and Clint Eastwood and 
stars like it, so I always had an interest into it. And I guess what really motivated me to uh, become in law enforcement, as, um, as a young man, I had an uh, uh, infant daughter that passed away. And when she passed away, there was nothing that I could do about that, and there was no way that um, I could help her. Um, so I had a calling, I felt, at that time to, um, to help people. And um, matter of fact, that same year is when I became involved in, uh, and got a job with the uh, Marshville Police Department. And how was it that you transitioned into the Department of Safety? I worked with the uh, City of Marshville Police for uh, 12 years. We decided to move to Florida. I worked with the uh, Bay County Sheriff's uh, Office in Florida for about four years, and then we decided when we moved back to Tennessee. And when we came back to Tennessee, I'd always had a desire to uh, be a state trooper, and that's when I got on with the Department of Safety. And tell us what some of the duties are that you do as a state trooper. Uh, presently, I'm assigned here in Rutherford County. I'm one of the sergeants here in Rutherford. My responsibility is to supervise the other troopers here and uh, also to um, um, work on our goals. Okay, I believe I've heard you on the WGNS Airways before. Uh, what role do you play in that? I do most of the uh, PSAs or the public service announcements for um, the Highway Patrol for here in Rutherford County. So a lot of our uh, enforcement uh, programs are uh, checkpoints. I uh, do the PSAs on those. Well, we certainly appreciate you taking the time to be here today. But before we get too deep into the case, we want you to tell us about the law enforcement officers that were involved in the investigation, who some of them were, and what roles they played in this investigation. Just about the whole detective division at that time was involved in it. There was, at the, the time, Mickey McCullough was the major over the division. Jim Gage was my immediate supervisor. Uh, he was a lieutenant. I was a sergeant, and the night that um, the complainant came in with the information, uh, I was the one on duty. I was the one working, so I was the initial detective that um, uh, received the information. So during the next day, through the uh, investigation, detectives uh, Carrie Thorpe, Larry Nobles, Amy Dean, Billy Gay, and I'm sure I'm leaving some out, but I, I remember all those being involved in it. The public in this case really played a huge role in solving the case. Can you tell us a little bit about those people and what information they provided? Uh, the public played a huge role in this investigation. One of the witnesses that played a huge role was a, a neighbor that lived in the apartment complex where, um, where the crime first started at. And that was uh, Vivian Knox. And her statement was she gave approximately 9.30 to 10 on the evening of the victim's murder, she overheard an argument inside Miss Dodson's apartment. Uh, she stated that she heard two or three voices arguing and some type of commotion that caused objects to fall off the wall, uh, walls. Soon after, she observed the victim walking to the car with his hands wrapped in a towel in front of him. And she also observed uh, Stacy falling behind and pushed the victim inside the car while telling him he was taking him to a hospital to treat him. Uh, about 30 minutes later, Knox saw the Stacy return, but did not see the victim in the car whenever they returned back to the apartment complex. It's always important for witnesses to come forward, and I know that she played a big role in that. And I also understand there were some raccoon hunters that I had mentioned in the summary that also provided information. Can you tell us about the, what they provided? Uh, there were. There were two raccoon hunters that were out that night when all this occurred. Out in the woods hunting, and... Um, stated approximately around 10 15 a.m he overheard two or three people talking from a distance and he heard loud music and then he heard a shotgun blast uh, from the general area where the victim's body was later found and then i know that there was another uh, witness who was mr daniel prater 
Can you tell us what information Mr. Prater had given law enforcement? Yeah, Mr. Prater, he was, I would say, our key witness. He uh, he was the one that came to the police department in the early hours of that morning, and um, I was the one that spoke to him that morning. He came with all this information, and what he was telling me was that Stacy had attempted to sell a car, his white Nissan Stanza. He was trying to sell it to him for $500. During that night, which was later found out to be the victim's vehicle, uh, Stacy entered Mr. Prater or encountered Mr. Prater at a convenience store located here in Murfreesboro. Um, although it was the first time that him and Prater had met, Stacy offered to sell Prater the car and its contents. Prater got in a stanza with Stacy to pick up some clothing and some other items that was included in the deal. On the way, Stacy stopped at a bridge, jumped from a car, retrieved a shotgun wrapped in a towel from up underneath the bridge. Prater also saw 12-gauge number six shot shells laying on the road where Stacy had recovered the shotgun. And Stacy also discarded a spent cartridge from, uh, from the weapon itself. Ultimately, Prater drove Stacy to his apartment complex and arranged to meet Stacy the following day at approximately dinner time with the money to pay for the sale of the stanza. Once Prater purchased the car and was inspecting the contents, he discovered the victim's social security card, the driver's license, and other personal belongings inside the car and decided to contact the police department. That's when he came uh, down to Marshville Police. And it was determined during our investigation at the early stages of it that the car did belong to the victim. And through further investigation, uh, was able to discover the victim's body, which led to Stacy's arrest. I specifically don't remember, even though General Weitzel and myself, along with Tom Jackson, tried this case. But was Mr. Prater the first witness to come forward yes. that gave you the information? He came, uh, he was the first witness. He actually came to the police department about 4 or 5 in the morning. It was still dark. And you referred to the shotgun and the shotgun shell. Uh, was it later determined that that shotgun and shotgun shell was, in fact, used in the murder? Uh, yes, it was. Sergeant Miller, during your investigation, you were able to determine several things. But I want to ask you this. Were you able to determine what the motive or motives were for Chris Stacy and Donnie Tidwell that led to the killing of Mr. Gregory Dotson? Uh, yes, we did. Uh, we believe the motives included that they did not like Greg Dotson. We also believe the proof showed they were racially motivated to kill Greg Dotson. We believe that these two men's actions were evil. They executed and injured a young man who was helpless while his hands was bound. One of the most interesting facts about the case to me was when Greg Dotson's body was found, his hands were tied in front of him and his palms were clasped together. It was this appeared as such as he was praying. The family of Greg Dotson was a remarkable group of people to work with. Greg Dotson's mother, Mary Reese, pressed Sam Stockert, who was a local reporter. I want to share with the audience what Mr. Stockert wrote in the Daily News Journal regarding Mary Reese. And I quote, Mary Reese had made peace with the demons that would haunt a mother after her son has been killed. As the jury deliberated for five hours, she bought pizza for her family and for the Tidwells while they both awaited the verdict. To show kindness to the family of someone who helped kill your son takes an unbelievable amount of forgiveness. I can add that Mary Reese is an outstanding example of a person who lives her faith and is an example for all of us. Can you tell us anything further about Miss Reese? She was a remarkable person. I, it was extraordinary to me because I'd been through a loss, one of my own children, 
but it was it was different uh it wasn't something through violence or a violent act and with her compassion um and her, with her beliefs it was uh it was unbelievable to me the way she was able to handle that and, and be such a, a great uh person and set a great example i know that you deal with a lot of sadness in the investigative work that you do how do you deal with that sadness and how do you keep yourself going when every day you're faced with the possibility of dealing with a real tragedy i put a lot of faith in my beliefs the way that i handle it myself personally is a lot of times i disengage myself it's uh, i look at it as this is my job it's my responsibility so i try to keep my personal emotions not involved in it now sometimes especially in certain cases and this being one of them when you go home at night and when you're not at work all these memories come rushing back and um it's a it can be a process sergeant miller we want to congratulate you and the other members of the murfreesboro law enforcement team that solved the murder of greg dodson News Radio WGNS 100.5, 101.9, Online and on your phone at WGNSRadio.com. Cloudy skies here for this afternoon with temperatures holding rather steady. North winds at 10 to 15 miles per hour, gusting as high as 20. Tonight, cloudy, low of 27. I'm meteorologist Jennifer Wojcicki on News Radio WGNS. Currently, it's 33. Good morning. Traffic still holding up right now. Coming down I-24 out of Coffee County into Rutherford. 840 still got some traffic uh, here up by Sulphur Springs Road. It's not bad as far as interstate accidents, but don't get me wrong, there's some slick spots out here. Hey, check out the Andre Chicken Sandwich, which is now available at Princess Hot Chicken, 5814 Nolensville Pike. I'm Commander Chuck. You're on time traffic. Post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, is common after ICU stays, as well as a host of other problems. Adam Kaplan, a psychiatrist at Johns Hopkins who is working with many COVID-19 survivors, says one common theme he sees is stigma. The stigma is such a profound aspect of this. They feel like they've got leprosy when they're there because everybody's gowned and everything like that. So there's stigma in the hospital. Then they go home and they're told to isolate from their family because they don't know how long it's going to take for them to be negative. They go to their room and they cocoon in their room. And now the room becomes the safe place for them. Kaplan says a big part of his job is helping people to leave the comfort of their room and go to rehab appointments and re- establish more normal relationships with family and friends. He says everyone's recovery will proceed at its own pace, so patience is needed. At Johns Hopkins, I'm Elizabeth Tracy. CEO Radio, I'm Ray Hoffman. Salesforce wouldn't be what it is today, a $200 billion company, if it hadn't flipped its business model from just selling its customer management software on a one-time basis to having companies subscribe to it. Teen Zuo, today CEO of subscription management software maker Zuora, was Salesforce's chief marketing officer at the time, and he says the immense value of the subscription model became apparent almost immediately. We all come from the software sector. We release a service, and we realize we can actually see what our customers are doing. We can incorporate that into better decision-making. To Zuo, the subscription model can provide something very precious, 
competitive advantage. If you release a product, there's nothing to stop your competitors from buying that product, reverse engineering it, maybe going into the supply chain, going to the Foxconn's of the world and figuring out how you built that product, whether it's a car, whether it's a piece of software. But your knowledge of your customers is unique. Every company's knowledge of what their customers do, their preferences, their relationships. Zuora's Teen Zuo. With CEO Radio, I'm Ray Hoffman. The Dave Ramsey Show, weekdays from 1 to 4. Broderick County's place to talk. What's the law? Time now for an examination of the laws of Tennessee. This is not intended to be legal advice and is being presented solely for the informational benefit of our listening audience. You should always consult with an attorney whenever you need or rely on legal advice. Paul, this morning I wanted to discuss uh, hate crimes and uh, the the homicide you've just described is a perfect example of a hate crime and generally when we talk about hate crimes we we believe it's a crime that's motivated by racial sexual or some other type of prejudice or or violence uh, or that involves violence against a select group uh, because of a belief they have or 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 something of that nature and uh, in Tennessee as in many states uh, agencies keep track of hate crimes uh, and this is something that um, you know has evolved over the years I remember when I first uh, heard the word of a hate crime involving a homicide I thought well I thought that's why all of them uh, you know people were killed because somebody hated them especially in premeditated uh, murder situations but it's it's broader than that and it uh, involves a, an additional area of proof to show the motivation was, in fact, uh, based on some bias. And in the the crime we just talked about, there was obviously a racial component there. You know, uh, the Tennessee legislature several years ago included in uh, the sentencing statute an enhancement where the crime is motivated uh, on the basis of some hate, prejudice, or bias. And... Uh, in the Tennessee Code annotated, it reads as this, that the defendant intentionally selected the person against whom the crime was committed or selected the property that was damaged or otherwise affected by the crime in whole or in part because of the defendant's belief or perception regarding the race, religion, color, disability, sexual orientation, national origin, ancestry, or gender of that person or owner or occupant of that property. So they, the, our legislature has clearly defined uh, that in sentencing an individual for a crime that the court can, incent- can consider and enhance a sentence based on uh, a hate situation. In addition to that, the Tennessee Code provides that uh, if someone is intimidated or uh, coerced as a result of their beliefs in the exercise of their civil rights, that that is a crime. It constitutes a Class D uh, felony, and uh, it it reads that a person commits the offense of intimidating others from exercising civil rights who injures or threatens to injure or coerces another person with the intent to unlawfully intimidate another from the free exercise or enjoyment of any right or privilege secured by the Constitution 
or laws of the state of Tennessee. So that recognizes, again, uh, that there are situations where people seek to coerce or intimidate because of a person's belief or race or, or other factors. Uh, other states have have laws that are similar to ours. Uh, some are more severe, and of course the federal government has hate crime uh, laws in addition. Uh, in, in this case, uh, race was a, a, a huge factor. Uh, we, we believed, and I believe the facts showed, that that was the, the primary motive for Mr. So uh, Tennessee does recognize uh, hate crime situations, and certainly it's become more pervasive, uh, especially in the uh, area of religion. Uh, across the country and in Tennessee, race is the number one uh, factor for hate crimes. Second uh, is, uh, is a sexual orientation and third and and one that's increasing is a religious uh basis and and so we'll see how how that continues to go forward but another area i think that we might look at that and we might see is hate crimes based on the fact that somebody's in law enforcement a random killing of an officer uh, just because they're a policeman or or a sheriff's deputy or in so, some other branch of law enforcement, and we don't have that as a group right now uh, in, in the in the hate crime area, but we do enhance punishment for aggravated assault on officers, and also in our death penalty statute, uh, an aggravating circumstance can be the fact that the individual was either a law enforcement officer, a judge, a district attorney, probation officer, etc., performing their their duties. So uh, we will see whether. Uh, our legislature or other legislatures includes law enforcement personnel in in these groups. And I, I recall, and I want to talk about Miss Reese. She was one of the finest individuals I ever had the privilege of meeting. And uh, I recall early on uh, when I first met her, she told me, "Mr. Weitzel, this has caused me to lose my faith." And uh, I I really believe that the fact that uh, the case progressed the way it did, the contact we had with her, the relationship that uh, you and I and Tom Jackson established with her helped restore her faith. And we heard a, uh, uh, Sergeant Miller talk about how she respected even the defendant's family. So I think it, I think the, the case ultimately restored her faith and faith in uh, I remember after the case was over, she sent us all a little uh, token of her appreciation that said something like the dream team, and, and I still have it on, on my desk, and uh, she was just a super person, super. The GNS in our call stands for Good Neighbor Station. That's been our objective since 1947. North winds at 10 to 15 miles per hour, gusting as high as 20. Tonight, cloudy, low of 27. I'm meteorologist Jennifer Vujitsky on News Radio WGNS. Currently, it's 33. 
Good morning. Traffic still holding up right now. Coming down I-24 out of Coffee County into Rutherford. 840 still got some traffic uh, here up by Sulphur Springs Road. It's not bad as far as interstate accidents, but don't get me wrong. There's some slick spots out here. Hey, check out the Andre Chicken Sandwich, which is now available at Princess Hot Chicken, 5814 Nolensville Pike. I'm Commander Chuck. You're on time traffic. At this time, I want to recognize and thank one of our community's most dedicated public servants, a person who has served us in so many ways and who has always served humbly, with integrity, and with an honest and deep-felt love for our community. The man I am talking about is the Honorable Judge David Bragg. Since 2008, Judge David Bragg has presided over the 16th Judicial District's Circuit Court Division II. After faithfully serving for over a decade, Judge David Bragg retired on January the 1st, 2021. When David Bragg became judge in 2008, I had the honor of appearing in his court many times over many years. Judge Bragg was always a jurist who respected and followed the law. He treated everyone in his courtroom with dignity and with respect. Perhaps his greatest attributes were his guiding values of humility, understanding, and sincere compassion for anyone and everyone who entered his courtroom. We congratulate Judge David Bragg on his retirement and wish him and his entire family the greatest of blessings as they enter a new and exciting phase in the life of David Bragg. As we end our program today, we thank our producer, Nick Coyne. We thank WGNS for providing the airtime. Most of all, we thank you for listening. Our next scheduled broadcast is Friday morning, February the 5th at 8.10 a.m. on your good neighbor station, WGNS. We leave by saying, a safe community is the responsibility of each and every one of us. For my co-host, Jennings Jones, this is Paul Newman, bidding all of you a safe and blessed day. News Radio, WGNS, Murfreesboro, the voice of Rutherford County, and the flagship station for Blue Raiders sports. The Cordas Clock shows it's 9 o'clock. Now, an update from the WGNSRadio.com News Center. I'm Ron Jordan reporting. Expect some long lines if you are renewing your automobile tags. The Rutherford County Clerk's Office is doing it by way of their drive through window due to COVID-19 protocols. What that means is a slow-moving line. Many of the clerk's motor vehicle services can be accomplished by telephone, mail, or online. Information about all of those choices on our website, WGNSRadio.com. An international air ventilation company is opening its North American headquarters and manufacturing facility in Murfreesboro. Governor Bill Lee announced that Woods Air Movement is investigating more than $3.5 million and creating nearly 30 jobs in Rutherford County. The new facility being built will serve as the company's headquarters and a manufacturing facility for industrial ventilation products. New unemployment claims rose by almost 6,500 across the state. For the week ending January 2nd, there were over 16,550 
new claims compared to 10,200 new claims a week before. Labor and workforce data shows new claims have risen in four of the last five weeks and are the highest this week since November 1st. Continued claims rose from 45,225 to 51,815. 2020 proves to be a busy year for Tennessee State Park campgrounds. In terms of nightly camping stays, four of the top ten busiest months in parks history occurred last year. October proved to be the busiest month, as a record was set with over 62,000 camping nights sold. Occupancy at campgrounds is expected to remain high throughout this year. When news breaks, we tweet it. Follow us at WGNS Radio. I'm Ron Jordan reporting. News updates around the clock, when it breaks, and on demand at WGNSRadio.com. We are News Radio WGNS, CBS Radio News. attack on the U.S. Capitol. A Senate Republican says he might join them. Nebraska's Ben Sass tells CBS this morning. House, if they come together and have a process, I will definitely consider whatever articles they might move. Sass calls President Trump's response to the rioting wicked. Mr. Trump issued his first condemnation last night in a White House video. Correspondent Ben Tracy says his initial refusal to do so has caused a rift with his number two. CBS News has learned that Vice President Mike Pence did not come here to the White House yesterday and that he and the president are barely speaking. There's a lot of pressure on the vice president to talk about invoking the 25th Amendment, especially from some lawmakers on Capitol Hill. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says if he does not do that, she will consider a second impeachment. Speaker Pelosi has just ordered flags at the Capitol lowered to half staff to honor the Capitol police officer who succumbed to his injuries. He suffered in the attack. Deputy Homeland Security Secretary Ken Cuccinelli tells CBS this morning. The FBI is fully pursuing anyone they can find who is involved in this criminal activity. And uh, we at DHS are assisting them in that. And there's no restraint on that. We are fully across the administration pursuing every avenue of justice available. There have been dozens of arrests. The FBI is offering a $50,000 reward for information on the person seen on video placing a pipe bomb at political party offices. COVID deaths in the U.S. topped 4,000 yesterday. New pandemic record. In California, one coronavirus patient is dying every eight minutes. Dr. Mara Carlotti, head of palliative care at Holy Cross Hospital in Mission Hills, says some seem to be dying of broken hearts. It is so lonely. The only thing that they have is the TV and us. Doctors in South Florida are reporting a new way to treat severe cases with stem cells from babies' umbilical cords. The study from the Cell Transplant Center at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine involved coronavirus patients with acute respiratory distress syndrome. I think this could be a turning point. Dr. Camillo Ricordi is the director. He says the treatment reduces the risk of death, has made recovery time faster, and is less invasive. Lisa Mateo, CBS News. The pandemic is taking a toll on jobs. The U.S. lost 140,000 positions in December. Bank rates Mark Hamrick says COVID restrictions are taking a toll. There was a stunning loss in the leisure and hospitality realm. Most of those were lost in bars and restaurants. Leisure and hospitality has seen the loss of nearly 4 million jobs from last February. Dow up 23. This is CBS News. CBS News Radio is your home for breaking news. With our team of reporters around the country and the world, we give you the coverage you can trust. Liberty. Liberty Mutual Insurance Company customizes your home insurance so you only pay for what you need. As a minimalist, paying less for insurance is more. Nice place. Is your house a bubble? 
It's a dome. I find corners unnecessary. At Liberty Mutual, that's how we feel about overpaying for insurance. But I do miss having shelves. Hmm, what would you put on them? Nothing, obviously. Only pay for what you need at LibertyMutual.com. Liberty, 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 Liberty. Microband 24 protects against Staphylococcus aureus and Enterobacter aerogenes bacteria, but does not provide 24-hour protection against viruses. Every time you touch a surface, you leave behind bacteria. To keep surfaces sanitized all day, use Microband 24 Sanitizing Spray. Spray on hard surfaces to kill 99.9% of viruses and bacteria initially, including the virus that causes COVID-19. Once dry, Microband 24 Sanitizing Spray is effective for 24 hours on bacteria when used as directed. Cloudy skies here for this afternoon with temperatures holding rather steady. North winds at 10 to 15 miles per hour, gusting as high as 20. Tonight, cloudy, low of 27. I'm meteorologist Jennifer Wojcicki on News Radio WGNS. Currently, it's 33. If only I could spend my whole paycheck on new tires, said no one ever. Which is why Bud's Tire Pros makes buying Michelin tires simpler. Allison Mitchell at Bud's Tire Pros can help you out. For service you can trust without the hassle, visit your local Bud's Tire Pros in town. They offer a straightforward approach to service and they include the nationwide warranty with every purchase. Stop in today to see their full lineup of Michelin tires. For whatever you drive, Michelin has a tire to fit any need. Tire Pros, hassle-free, guaranteed. To find out more, visit BudsTireProsTN.com. This is Good Neighbor Events with Bart Walker. Brought to you by AmeriCare Pest Control and the Law Offices of John Day. This is a paid legal ad. Hi, this is John Day of the Law Offices of John Day. I've lived and worked as a lawyer in Middle Tennessee for over 30 years, and to me, every single day has been an honor. That's why our firm is so involved with community programs like bicycle helmet giveaways and our Safe Ride Home program. At the Law Offices of John Day, we're not just looking to make donations. We want to make a difference in the community we hold so dear. And if you're ever injured, know that we are here for you too. Now, WGNS Good Neighbor Events. The 19th annual Polar Bear Plunge is almost here. It'll be Saturday morning, January the 9th at 10 o'clock in the outdoor pool at SportsCom. It's going to be a little different this year. Be sure to bring towels and blankets for the ride home. The admission is a can of non-perishable food for Greenhouse Ministries. Once again, the 19th annual Polar Bear Plunge is at the outdoor pool at SportsCom. It'll be 10 o'clock Saturday morning, January the 9th. And Saturday mornings are devoted to local history. Join your friends from the Rutherford County Historical Society Saturday mornings from 9 to noon at the old one-room Ransom Schoolhouse. Don't throw away old glory. Retire your American flag with respect. Bring it by WGNS and let the scouts from BSA Troop 2019 at Trinity United Methodist Church retire it with dignity. WGNS is at 306 South Church Street. We also recycle Bibles. <laughs> 